Hey, we're glad you guys are here tonight for RUF. Uh, it is our practice in RUF to go through books of the Bible. This fall we are going through the letter to the Hebrews. We're not quite sure who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. It was somebody uh, in kind of the Pauline circle, but it has some distinctive traits about it. Tonight we're going to be looking at chapter 4. And as we look at chapter 4, this is the question that I think we need to ponder tonight. Which is, why do you do what you do? And particularly, why are you running? And what are you running for? How many of you guys have seen Chariots of Fire? Anybody? Do people still watch that movie? Um, it's a great movie. It actually was one of the first like, Christian-themed movies to win the Best Picture Oscar, right? And um, it's, a, it's a, based on a true story about two runners, uh, one who is a Christian guy who uh, has a problem with running on the Sabbath. And at some point in the movie, he tells his sister, who's really concerned, you know, his, his, basically he feels this call to be a missionary in China. And eventually, in, in real life, the guy does go to China and a missionary uh, gets imprisoned in jail during Mao Zedong's rise to power and dies there. Uh, actually, is the rest of that story. But um, Eric Little says, you know, when he's asked at one point why he runs, he says, I run because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. And then there's the other guy in the movie who's not a Christian. And at one point in the movie, he makes this very revealing statement. Harold Abrams is his name. And as he contemplates an upcoming race, he says this. Tomorrow... I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Do you run because you feel God's pleasure? Or because you feel you need to justify your existence? See, as we come to talk about rest, and entering into the rest of God, I think the real difficulty in resting as God designed human beings to rest is that we find it so difficult to trust that he's got things under control. What is your quarter or what is your stage upon which you must justify yourself. It's difficult to rest because you can't really rest until you're sure that your justification is a settled deal. And that's what Hebrews 4 talks about, about how we need to use the resources God has given us to be able to rest in Jesus alone. And so we're going to look at three points and then we're going to look into the scripture here. What is the rest that's spoken of here in Hebrews 4? What has God given us so that we can enter into this rest? And how are we to practice Sabbath rest even today? All that stuff is here in Hebrews chapter 4. So if you have a Bible or you can follow along, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. I am actually reading out of the New International Version tonight. I know a lot of you guys use the ESV. I find the NIV a little easier syntax to follow in the book of Hebrews uh, many places. So, therefore... Since the promise of entering his rest, meaning God's rest, still stands, let us be careful 
that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, talking about people in the Old Testament, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And you're like, that seems like a strange passage. But the key phrase there is my rest. The idea that God has a rest he describes as my rest. Okay? Sometimes when the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, you're like, what? What's going on? I'm going to explain it. Trust me. Just follow along. Um, so, it's, you know, the Old Testament, God talks about his rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. Right? After God created in six days, then he rested. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, I'm going to explain this. There was a, a, a time when God spoke to the people wandering in the desert what they needed to do to enter in the promised land and enter into his rest. And yet later, through David, years and years and years, centuries later, God spoke again through David about a future rest, which means that the promised land was not the ultimate rest. Does that make sense? That there's still a rest to come. And that's what he says here in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua is the one who God used to bring his people into the promised land. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience, meaning the people who were wandering in the desert who didn't get to go into the promised land. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we were, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this passage and thank you for this promise. Help us to understand this rest and what it means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the first whole section is talking about what the rest is. And then, actually, when it goes in verse 12, for the word of God 
is living and active, when it starts out with that four, that's a linking word, right? And, and the connection is a little difficult to see, but I think the way I understand this passage is, he's saying you need to enter the rest. But it's difficult to enter the rest. Not everybody who heard the promise has entered into the rest. So how is God going to help us enter in the rest? It's not enough just to read the Bible and figure out what you're supposed to do. The real challenge is having the courage or being able to do it. And God gives us actually several important things to help us enter the rest. He gives us the word of God that exposes us and lays us bare. He also gives us Jesus, this merciful high priest, and he gives us access to the throne of God in prayer. So because the rest is such an important thing, he doesn't just leave us out there saying, oh, I guess I need to try to enter in the rest. I don't really know what to do or how to get there. God doesn't just leave us in that place. So we're going to talk about what is the rest? How do we get there? What are these things that God has given us and how do they help us get into this rest? And then what does it mean even today when we think about the Sabbath and how we can live and enjoy resting in God? Right? So that's where we're going. So what is the rest that still remains? Well, when you look at verse 7, um, you find that it's a rest that's bigger than just the promised land, right? He says, you know, Joshua, if Joshua had given them all the fullness of the rest, then God wouldn't have spoken later through David, really like a thousand years later, about rest again. And so what that means is the rest was never merely an earthly rest. God's people were never merely to live in the promised land forever and ever and ever. Just as they were never, Hebrews is later going to tell us when we get into like chapters 8, 9, and 10, the Old Testament sacrificial system was never designed to actually deal with the sin problem. And you know that because the sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Similarly to that, you know that the promised land was not the ultimate rest because even after God's people are in the land, God still promises about a rest that's to come. Jesus is the fulfillment of this rest. The physical promised land, the Sabbath day, are all pointing to Jesus, the ultimate rest. Jesus is the greater promised land. Being with him, abiding with him, is like living in a hand, land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus is the greatest Sabbath rest. So it's a rest that's not merely an earthy rest. And we see that it's a rest that we must enter. There's some kind of scary stuff in this passage, isn't there? There's all these warnings about making sure that you enter the rest. There is no real rest other than resting in Jesus. And if you miss it, there are grave consequences. Don't harden your heart. Don't try to make your rest anywhere besides Jesus. Now, what is he saying? Is he saying to Christian people that like, if you screw up, you're going to get cast out of the promised land, you're going to lose your rest, and you're going to lose your salvation, so to speak. That's not what he's saying. What you need to understand, uh, and we'll cover this more, especially when we get to chapter 6, which is an even more intense warning passage. These warning passages in Hebrews, you have to understand the Hebrews is a sermon 
spoken to a mixed group. Some people that are true Christians, some people who are kind of hanging out with the Christian community, but they've not really been converted. And as persecution is coming, many of them are considering turning back and separating themselves from the Christian community. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's serious, because the only place where you can really find salvation, find rest, find peace with God, is through Jesus. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. There's no other hope, right? Now, I put a little, some stuff in there. I love this quote by Spurgeon when I think about these sorts of things. See, faith is not something you have to wump up. Faith is something that comes as a gift. The book of Acts talks about this several places. I love um, in Acts chapter 11, after Peter goes and speaks the gospel to Gentiles and they get converted, he goes back to tell the other apostles, like, guys, you're never going to guess what happened. God actually um, saved some Gentiles who weren't Jews. And the Spirit came on them just like it did on us in the day of Pentecost. And all the rest of the apostles rejoice, and here's what they say. God has granted, or you could translate that, that Greek word, gifted, even the Gentiles with repentance unto life. The Bible speaks of repentance not as the thing you do that qualifies you for salvation, but as the gift that God gives you through which he blesses you with new life. It's the first cry of the newborn infant. That's faith. Well, more on that when we get to chapter 11. So the rest is not merely an earthly rest. It's a rest that we must enter. The rest is Christ alone. Verse 10 makes it clear. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example, the people wandering in the desert, their example of disobedience. God's people, if you want to know what does it mean to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is it means to rest from your works and rest in his works. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, quoting Horatius Bonar, the great Scottish hymn writer, said it so well. It's one of my favorite little, little quotes. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to truly rest. Um, you know, in Acts chapter 2, maybe some of you have heard this story about how Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches this sermon uh, after people say, what must we do to be saved? What does he tell them? Repent and be baptized. Now, uh, there are a lot of Christian groups that make repentance out to be like the thing that you got to do, like your work that qualifies you for grace. But in Isaiah 30, verse 15, which I think is the background for how Peter as a Jew understood repentance, it says this, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Now, the way Hebrew poetry works, it doesn't rhyme, but it uses parallelism. And, and so what the Hebrew parallelism here is saying is that repentance and rest are the same thing. 
just as quietness and trust are the same thing. The problem is we resist it. And the passage goes on and talks about, you know, if you resist resting in God and you put your hope in other things, here's what we know will be true about you. Irrational fear will dominate your life. The way Isaiah 30 goes on and says it is, if you flee on strong horses, because the context is there, there is a, a conquering nation, the Assyrians, that are threatening Israel, and Israel says, well, I know how we're going to protect ourselves. We're going to make an alliance with Egypt. And God's like, Egypt? I delivered you from Egypt. And now you're going back and selling yourself into slavery to Egypt again? But that's exactly what they're doing. And so what God says, if you're going to look to military might for your safety, I'm going to make you actually paranoid because you can't find rest there. And so he has this image of a thousand will flee at the sight of one. It's the idea, you know, I don't care how big your army is, if your trust isn't in God, you're not resting in God, you're incredibly vulnerable. And at the sight of one soldier, your whole army will flee. That, that's the thing. If you're not resting, Isaiah 30 says, you will know it because your life will be marked by irrational fear, worry, anxiety. Now, that's not the only reason why people struggle with worry and anxiety. I don't want to say that. It can be real chemical imbalance issues, right? And if you're really struggling with that, man, I'd love to talk to you. I really have. I don't want you just suffering in silence about that. But there is this connection between not being able to rest because we're not quite sure that Jesus has done everything we need to justify us. See, this, the Sabbath, the Sabbath is this picture of God's gift to us. You know, it's such a big deal that the early Christians go from worshiping on the last day of the week to the first day of the week. Do you ever consider that? I mean, the Ten Commandments are like the Big Ten, right? The Ten Words. And yet the early Christians changed the day of the week for two reasons. That's the day upon which Jesus himself rose from the dead. But also because they, be, they begin to make this theological connection that we don't work, 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 hoping to enter the rest. The rest comes first, and we work out of that. The Christian Sabbath helps us understand that the Christian life is lived out of rest. Rest comes first. We don't work, 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 hoping to rest. We live out of the rest that's been secured for us. I, I love the way 1 John chapter 4, 16 talks about it this way. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. A lot of people I know that are wearing themselves out trying to rely on their love for God. Now, it's hard to rely on God's love for you if you don't know much about it. It's one of the reasons that the Bible is so precious. It's one of the reasons you should keep coming to RUF and going to church and be in the Bible. It's because we need to know about the love God has for us if we're going to rely on it. But that's very different than the way a lot of people who are Christians are living their life. A lot of Christians I know are worn out because they're trying to rely on their love for God. The Sabbath is God's gift to us so we can rest from our work. But even more importantly, get this, it's his gift 
to us so that we can rest in his love for us. One of my professors who's gone to his heavenly rest now um, used to say that it's one day in seven that God gives us to work on our love relationship with him. And how, how many relationships do you have that really grow if you don't attend to them and spend some time nurturing them? Right? God has given us a day to work on our love relationship with him. So many people see the Sabbath as a hassle or a, a, a yeah, just a, a, a burden. But if it's important that we know and rely on the love God has for us, how gracious and beautiful it is it that he calls us to set aside one day to actually do that. But it's a big deal to resist this rest. And you get that from the sense, right? God swore an oath in his anger that if, if you won't trust in me, you'll never enter into my rest. Now that's a hard thing. I found this quote by Spurgeon helpful in this regard. He says, I don't know of anything against which God's fury burns more than against this self-righteousness because this touches him in a very tender point. It insults the glory and honor of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but to refuse to enter the rest that Jesus has provided is actually incredibly insulting to God. And I'll just leave that there. It's worth pondering. So what has God given us to enter this rest? If this rest is so important, if it really is equated with being a Christian, help. God, help, right? What has he given us to help? The first thing he gives us is his word. I love this. Now, you know, this is why it's helpful sometimes to do a whole chapter of the Bible at once. I know we've got to cover a lot this way, but I want you to see this connection. God gives us the word to help us in our self-righteousness that keeps us from resting in Jesus. The word of God is alive and active, verse 12 says, sharper than any double-edged sword. It gets right down into the deepest parts of your whole. And what does it do? The deepest parts of your soul, it lays you bare. It lays you bare. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, you you can take that either as a threatening idea or as a beautifully gracious idea. Like, God, I don't even know what's going on in my own heart. The Word of God is living and active and can help show you the places where you're resisting Him and His goodness. The Word is sharp and active. It's alive because we need a living Word to show us all the places where we're still resisting God and His goodness where we still feel like I need to hold on to a little of my own self-righteousness just to cover my bases. I love this, uh, this quote by Martin Luther. It's a, it's a, it's a little long, uh, but, but he basically is writing to a friend of his. And this is near the end of his life, so he's been teaching and preaching for years about the gospel. And God used him, even though he wasn't a perfect man, and said some crazy things, a lot of crazy things, um, he said some really beautiful things about what it's like to trust boldly in God. And um, he talks basically about how difficult it is to live trusting in Christ's righteousness 
rather than our own righteousness. He says it's exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though we are now in faith, in other words, even though I now know that my relationship with God has to be based on faith and not me doing good works to impress him, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, well, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take this into account. We just want a, a little extra, a little something that makes us better than somebody else. A little, little something just to add to what Jesus has done. He says we want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. When you come before God, that last line in that paragraph, leave boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But he says, try and do this and you'll find how difficult it is. I've been teaching and preaching this for 20 years and I still find this clinging dirt of legalism, basically wanting to haggle with God and say, come on, you know, you need to bless me. Look at all I've done. Look at all I've sacrificed. So he gives us the living and active word, and we need it because our hearts are so deceitful. They're so deceitful. But he also gives us this great high priest, Jesus. God doesn't just expose our sin by the word. You know what the word also does? It reveals Jesus to us. So it exposes us and opens our eyes to see our great high priest, Jesus, the merciful one who can sympathize with our weakness but was without sin. This is the kind of Savior we need. Again, these words of Luther are so helpful. He had a friend named Staupitz. Sorry, he had, he had a friend. He did have a, a mentor named Staupitz. He had a friend named Spalatin. Get all these Germans mixed up. But Spalatin basically was another pastor, friend of Luther's, and at one point he wrote some advice to a couple, and then later Spalatin felt like he had given them bad advice, and he was just beating himself up over it. He's like, how could I, of all people, have given such bad advice to this couple that asked me? I should know better, right? So Luther hears that Spalatin's like beating himself up, and he writes this letter, kind of sarcastic. Sometimes when your friends are really down on themselves, you've got to just get them to laugh a little. And that's what Luther's doing here. He says, my faithful request and admonition is that you, Mr. Spalatin, join our company and associate us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must not by no means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no, that would not be good for us. He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yea, and from the very greatest and most shocking sins, to be brief, from all sins added together in a grand total. Dr. Staupitz, who was Luther's mentor, comforted me on a certain occasion when I was in the same hospital and suffering the same affliction as you. By addressing me thus, this is what Staupitz said to him, Aha, you want to be a painted, or we would say gilded, sinner. In other words, somebody who's a sinner, but you look good to the outside. And accordingly, expect to have in Christ a painted Savior. I love this part. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior, and you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting nor dealing in imaginary affairs, 
but he was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own son into the world and sacrificed him for our sakes. I love that. That, That's such a key to the Christian life. You will have to get used to the idea that you are a real sinner and Christ is a real Savior. And if you wonder sometimes why why God doesn't seem very powerful in your life and it doesn't seem to move you, maybe it's because you're trying to hide from the fact that you're a real sinner. It's like Flannery O'Connor said about the South, that it's haunted by Christ and that people avoid Jesus by avoiding their sin. Nice people aren't blown away by the idea that Jesus would come to save sinners. So we have a great high priest. And then we have access to the throne of grace in prayer. Man, this is one of the most beautiful parts of the book of Hebrews. That God doesn't just make us beautiful in his sight, but he welcomes us and invites us in and gives us access to the holy of holies to come boldly. I don't know about that. I, I, I think it's so interesting how often when we pray, most people I know pray, what do they do? They bow their heads and they look down. Of course, the Bible nowhere says that you have to do that. As a matter of fact, great uh, theologian J.I. Packer says that he can't find any, any evidence that people prayed silently before the 17th century. But yet we all do it. The Puritans had prayer closets. You know why? Not so that they would be, uh, distur- you know, wouldn't be disturbed by other people, which is why we have prayer closets, like that quiet little place where you can go. No, they had prayer closets because in their screaming at God in prayer, they would disturb everybody else. That's why they went and found a, a place that was sort of set off. And honestly, you know, I don't know how you read the story about Jesus going to, you know, sort of these lonely places by himself to pray. Did you always think that was because he would get too distracted by everybody else? I mean, he fell asleep in a boat with winds and, and raging storms. He seemed to be able to tune things out. Maybe it's because he needed to go scream at God a little bit. I don't know. It's worth, it's worth pondering. But we have access. We have access to come boldly because Jesus has opened the way for us. Now, there's, there's so many things I could say about the Sabbath. I, I'm not going to say very much of what I wrote here because I wrote a lot here for you to take. But when you think about how to live as a Sabbath, just a couple thoughts. Living an actual Sabbath in our day and age is a countercultural thing. It's about interference. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson, guy who wrote the message. He says, Sabbath is a deliberate act of interference, an interruption of our work each week, a decree of no work so that we are able to notice, to attend, to listen, to assimilate this comprehensive and majestic work of God, to orient our work in the work of God. In other words, sometimes you just are going along and you don't ever stop to think about why are you doing what you're doing. Sabbath is an opportunity to stop and think about what you're doing and why, but it's also a countercultural stand. William Willimon, who used to be the chaplain at Duke, said it this way, Sabbath keeping is a publicly enacted sign of our trust that God keeps the world. Therefore, we don't have to. And Sabbath keeping is about ceasing. If you want to read a good book on keeping the Sabbath, I love this book by Marva Dawn. She's a fabulous Lutheran pastor and theologian. It's called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. She says that Sabbath ceasing means to cease not only from work itself, 
but also from the need to accomplish and be productive, from the worry and tension that accompany our modern criteria of efficiency, from our efforts to be in control of our lives as if we were God, from our possession, possessiveness and our enculturation, and finally from the humdrum and meaninglessness that result when life is pursued without the Lord at the center of it all. It gives us freedom to see differently, and it gives us freedom to embrace a different way to live. Last couple little points here as we tie this together. The Sabbath is a party that whets our appetite for the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come. Thus, there's an ache and a longing that's cultivated through Sabbath keeping. Even as there's great joy in the celebration of the day itself, it's just one day in six and it comes to an end. But there's a Sabbath coming that will never end. It's a day to feast on our God and worship. And as we think about it, think about this. Jesus is the one who gave up perfect rest in the Father's joy so that we could gain the rest we were made for. Think about that. Jesus experienced everything the Sabbath points to, and he gave it up. He gave it up so that the rest could be secured for you and me, who don't even appreciate it. It's a beautiful thing. I want to close with a song, because I kind of like doing that last week. Y'all want to do that again?